HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Ludwig Coffee, delivering exceptional specialty coffee to New Yorkers since 2018. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Today we're talking with David Waters. David is the CEO of Community Servings. Community Servings is a nonprofit that brings hot, nutritionally dense meals to people homebound with illness. I first met David when he was working as a general manager, correct me if I'm wrong, at Upstairs on the Square back in the day. Upstairs at the Pudding. Upstairs at the Pudding, even back or back or in the day. It was in the height of the AIDS crisis. It was what year, David? 25 years ago? 1990. And David and a few other people saw the need for people who were homebound with AIDS. They needed to be fed and their families needed to be fed. And he came up with some of these incredible fundraising ideas and an organizational vehicle to provide homebound meals. And it knocked my socks off every year since then. And it's just been incredible to watch it grow. But one of the things I don't know about you, David, is what it was about you and your life and your upbringing where you started to understand that food was the key. I grew up with a single mother. My my father died when I was a baby. And so my mother raised four kids. But in order to support us in the early 60s, she had to work full time. So the only time you got to connect with my mother as a parent, and of course, all four of us, you know, wanting her attention, was over the dinner table. And so that conversation that happens around the table was baked into my DNA, that really important connection with your mother. So that was really important, I think, seminal connection to how we all break bread together and the community that we have through that. In high school, I started washing dishes. And well, even before that, my mother used to throw cocktail parties. And I would sneak down the back stairs to the kitchen to eat the hors d'oeuvres. And she would say, well, at least pass them first. At 8, 9, 10, I'm, I'm going around with a platter of hors d'oeuvres and stack of cocktail napkins. And soon all of her friends were hiring me to pass hors d'oeuvres at their cocktail parties. 
That led to a job washing dishes at a summer hotel and being a, a bellboy and at 19 being promoted to be the restaurant manager. I'd never waited tables and I'm writing the training manual for how to wait tables. And so I ended up reading Emily Post and I was probably the only 19 year old who actually knew the the rules behind proper etiquette and, and serving from the left and pouring beverages from the right and, and all of that. But I knew it by the book much more than I did in reality. It introduced me to the food world. I didn't actually always think that I would be in the food world. There was a time when I thought about going to hotel school and my mother said, do a liberal arts degree first. I was in catering. I uh, was in the restaurant business. I was a grill cook in a fast food restaurant. Lots of things that ultimately led me to Upstairs of the Pudding. Amazing. You went to college not to study food, obviously. Not not to study food. I went to Middlebury College in Vermont, a traditional sort of English major. When I graduated, I thought I wanted to be a playwright. So I set out on sort of parallel tracks of learning to write and paying the bills through being in the restaurant and catering business, being a bartender, managing a catering company in Cambridge for a number of years as an events manager. When I came to Upstairs at the Pudding, the wonderful old restaurant above the Hasty Pudding Theater, it was because I had previously been the house manager for the theater through the American Repertory Theater. My first job out of college, professional job, was with the American Repertory Theater. Through that, I got two master's degrees in creative writing, one in fiction writing and, and one in dramatic literature. Through the process of getting those two master's degrees, discovered that I didn't want to be a writer and stumbled you know, back into the food business because it was what I knew. So set the scene for me in the late 80s, early 90s. Are you an out and openly gay man by then or not? All of the story revolves around the history of HIV and AIDS. I happened to be a young man coming out of college and also coming out of the closet as a gay man in, you know, the, the early 80s, just as AIDS was accelerating. Uh, and ultimately wreaking havoc on the gay community. I can vividly remember not reading a single news story about it because it was too scary until the death of Rock Hudson. And I, I can remember the front of Time magazine with this big portrait of Rock Hudson and and me kind of taking a big gulp, you know, emotionally and sitting down to read the cover story because I had had tried to put my head in the sand for so long. Can you imagine if your intimacy is so closely tied as a young person just exploring what it's like to be intimate with somebody, that there's a death sentence attached to that. I remember uh, a group of guys standing on the beach in Provincetown and all looking beautiful in, in the 80s. And you know they're in their 20s. And two years later, eight out of the 10 were dead. It gives you a sense for what so many people have forgotten and resonates today with COVID in so many ways, but just the terror that that brought, and particularly to somebody who was very vulnerable to it as a young gay man. When I heard that there was this group forming to start a meals program for people with HIV called Community Servings, it was all restaurateurs that I connected with, as well as public health leaders and Jewish activists through the American Jewish Congress. But to me, the connection was people I respected, like Madame Robert and Robert from Maison Robert and Michaela Larson and Odette Berry from another season, people like that, that were starting this 
the only thing I knew that I could help with was that I knew how to do fundraising and throw parties because I'd been a caterer. So I said, I'll help you start your first fundraiser. We worked for six months and we raised $25,000. We thought we'd made more money than God to do this, but it was the early germ of an idea of let's feed people with HIV. That was really where my involvement with community servings, which I've now been involved with for 30 years, started. So you started being involved with the first fundraiser and you grew it, but you didn't grow it as a full-time career for quite a few years. Right. So after that first fundraiser, and there were other wonderful people, you, I know you know Corby Cummer was another person that was involved at the same time I was and other friends in the in the business. And the organization started feeding 30 people a day in Roxbury and Dorchester. What's really important to understand from a food perspective that I think is so cool is that in the early years of the AIDS epidemic, the majority of people actually died of malnutrition. It's what's called AIDS wasting syndrome in that your body essentially attacks itself trying to kill off the virus. And young men, before it kind of diversified, would lose 30 to 40 pounds of lean body mass in a matter of weeks. And yet there were no drugs yet invented. So there was no AZT, there were no drug cocktails, sort of like today with waiting for the vaccines. There was nothing there. So if you loved somebody who was very, very sick with AIDS and you were desperate for a cure or treatment, the only way to care for them was to feed them because you could give them calories to try and stave off the weakness that comes with muscle loss. And so we think of it as the first example of food as medicine. It's where really food was the only way you could keep somebody alive. All of the work that we've done since really builds off that idea of using food to care for the community in so many different ways that would resonate with you from the emotional connection of food, the, you know, the nurturing that comes from a beautiful meal, the, the community sense of breaking bread together. More recently, the healthcare perspective on food and nutrition in the context of healthcare. And it's been really a, a wild ride, but it all started with a group of people around a table at Upstairs of the Pudding planning fundraisers. Joan Parker, who's the late wife of Robert Parker, the famous mystery novelist, was one of those people. And what she and Bob did was they lent their reputation. It was right as the TV show Spencer for Hire was on, they were becoming sort of celebrities. He was having very successful mystery novels. And they, they had two children, both sons, who were both gay. And so they too felt the threat of AIDS. They lent their name and their reputation to this tiny little HIV meals program. And you have to remember, this was when anybody that would even go towards a person with AIDS was wearing yellow rubber gloves. And Reagan wouldn't even mention it for his entire term. And there was just this tremendous stigma. People's families were disowning them on their deathbeds. I had friends personally where they had no one except community servings because their parents had disowned them, their partner or their lover had disowned them, all because everyone was so scared. Looking back, it's just so exciting that food, for those of us who love the food community, could play this major role in an epidemic. And it's just so exciting to see as somebody who loves talking about food and eating food and making food and just all the ways that it can help to further the community is really exciting. 
So to begin with, you were feeding people, but how did this whole mechanism for like getting food delivered to people's homes, which was a logistical nightmare, how did that begin and flourish? And The basic idea is that you make food and you bring it to people's homes. It started in a variety of cities around the country. It wasn't just Boston. In New York and San Francisco, they were almost always women who founded it. Here in Boston, it was Sheila Dechter of the American Jewish Congress, but it was oftentimes women who started feeding their neighbors, the gay guy who lived down the hall. And then that gay guy had another friend. And so they brought another meal. And so it was literally that kind of grassroots is how it started in a number of communities. Here in Boston, we started with a subcontract to an elder Meals on Wheels program. Out of that, uh, realized that they were used to feeding elderly people, not needing as many calories. And so we had to give two entrees to each person because these were young guys with an appetite and who needed to really add as many calories as possible. In those days, it was all about cream and butter, sort of Julia Child-esque. It was like, how many calories can we put into one meal? And it, it wasn't about lean proteins or the right nutrient mix. It was all about the challenge, as you said, was it was very heartwarming to bring a hot meal to somebody that we thought was sick. And it was only years later that we started to say, well, a hot meal that sits on a truck for four hours isn't really hot. It's not really appetizing. It's definitely not safe in terms of bacteria that we morphed into a much more sophisticated model. Today, we're doing 800,000 meals a year uh, statewide. The rigor of the way we do it is evolved significantly. But it started with this idea of let's bring a hot meal, let's put lots of cream and butter in it, and let's look out for 30 people. And these were all people that nobody, and this is true today, nobody's knocking on these people's doors. Nobody cares about them. They are very isolated. And it's true in the context of COVID. They're very isolated. No one's checking on them. But when our driver shows up with a meal and knocks on the door with a big smile, that's a really powerful message that says the community sees you, you're not forgotten, and here's some beautiful food as a gift from the community. I've had the honor, and I consider it an honor, of riding in the truck a couple of times with the guys who are delivering the meals. And it is just as David said, when they show up with their insulated whatever it is full of those meals, it's an incredible relationship. People are overjoyed to see them. <laughs> I don't think I fully understood until this moment the impact of the fact that these, this was probably the only person who crossed their doorstep that day or maybe that week or even that month. Probably with AIDS, people were even more afraid to come and visit people that they knew who were sick. Is that true, do you think? There was just so much fear really like we're living through in the COVID world, but that fear that if you got near someone, if you touch the same drinking glass, you were going to get AIDS and you were going to die. You had to throw away their utensils afterwards. Not that that was true, but that that was the perception. The tragedy of the lost generation of talented gay men initially, and then you know individuals from communities of color and IV drug users. And it was just so many people that had a whole life ahead of them that they were robbed of it because of AIDS, um, much the way we are devastated to see the losses across the world, around the world now with COVID. I think of the people that I knew that I've lost. You must have lost a lot of people close to you. And I also think about the people who have 
the syndrome and have been on medication and will be on medication for the rest of their life and how that must have changed their lives as well. For those who thought that it was a death sentence and then they were lucky enough to do well on the first drugs and the drug cocktails, the story changed in 1995, 1996 when those drugs came along. But even then, it was they were such toxic drugs that it created all sorts of side effects. That's a good segue into community servings had to diversify the meals we were making because of those side effects. We also moved into what where we are today, which is recognizing that when people are sick, there's there's two key things that we learned that I, I think are so cool. The first is that sick people have no appetite. So if we bring them mediocre food, uh, which is what you might expect from a large-scale feeding program, uh, they're not going to eat it. So all the time and effort and, and money is wasted. So if um, you want to get someone to eat, if you think of friends, you've, who've, family members who've gone through chemo, for instance, or dialysis treatments and how it impacts their tastes, um, it, it means bringing beautiful food. Um, and so it goes back to the things that those of us in the food community think are so important, you know, in high quality ingredients, whole ingredients, uh, and really cooking the way our grandparents cooked. So at community servings, everything that we make is scratch made. It's homemade soup stocks, you know, for hundreds of thousands of portions. It's bread and desserts that are baked in our own kitchen. It's uh, produce that comes from local farms, 100,000 pounds that would otherwise end up in the waste system. It's local purchasing of fish and beef from a cooperative in Vermont. It's herbs from our own garden. So it's really that that idea of that comfort food that our grandparents made is what we use, the colors, the smells, the taste we think are so important to get you to have an appetite. But beyond that, it's recognizing that different people need different foods uh, and different types of foods. So if you, you have somebody in your family with diabetes, you know what it's like, or uh, Crohn's or something like that, where you have to start to think about how to plan a diet. Well, we have uh, 1,700 people with different diets. Um, and so with different dietary restrictions and allergies and all of that. So we offer 15 different diets, but we have the ability to multi-layer multiple diets on the same meal. So rather than saying you can be diabetic or you can have kidney failure, many people have both. I often tell this story. My best friend had diabetes that led to kidney failure, uh, heart disease, strokes, uh, blindness, inability to work, on dialysis, kidney transplant list. He needed a diet that controlled for glucose, potassium, phosphorus, vitamin K, and sodium. Any of us as passionate foodies and home cooks probably couldn't run to the store to Whole Foods tonight and plan that menu. So when you say that message to somebody who's low income and can't get off the couch because of chemo and has kids running underfoot and is worried about losing their housing or foster care coming and taking their children away, to say you're going to control for glucose, potassium, phosphorus, and sodium is, is just absurd. So that's the service community servings provides for people is that we, we can do that for them and do it in the dignity of a beautiful meal with high quality ingredients and, and never forget the, the love and the respect that's packed into that meal, but also the, the medical treatment that we provide through the food. It's almost like a pharmaceutical, except it's, it's prescribed for exactly what you need to be eating. 
So, of course, the challenge for us is how do you get the right meal to the right person? Because if you bring the wrong meal, you're, 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 at, you're at risk of making them sicker. Um, and oftentimes, if we're feeding the whole family, each person in the family is getting a different diet. You know, I might get a diabetic meal and my spouse is a vegetarian and my child is a finicky eater. They're going to get a child-friendly meal. But uh, I could also be getting diabetic renal soft. So it's a computer system that drives that um, so that we know who's getting what and what day we need to be cooking their food or packaging up their food. And from that, the staff and the volunteers are being very careful to make sure the right bag for the right person uh, is getting packed. And more recently, we've added a shipping component. So if we can't get to your home with our trucks and drivers, we can ship it via UPS and know that the food will stay safe because we've done a lot of testing of that over the last two years. You alluded to it at the beginning, but you really lived it of crossing over from feeding hungry people who were not well to understanding that food is part of therapy. Food is medicine. I mean, food is food and important for the whole family, but food as a prescriptive tool for a sick person is something you understood. Has all of this changed the way you eat and you cook and you live at home? One of my favorite uh, quotes was from a dietitian. I work with a lot of, we have, we have eight dietitians on our staff here, was a dietitian once who said to me, everything in moderation, including moderation, which I think all of us in the food business would appreciate. You know, you, you can't eat fabulous barbecue every night. We'll be back with David Waters in a minute and hear more about his incredible journey and how he's grown this amazing organization. This episode is brought to you by Ludwig Coffee. With over 100 years of coffee cultivation heritage in the family behind this company, Ludwig Coffee has been delivering exceptional specialty coffee to New Yorkers since 2018. Their network of small co-op and family-owned farms grants Ludwig Coffee the opportunity to select exceptionally unique green coffee, ready to roast in small batches in Brooklyn, New York. Splurging on the main ingredient is important. Shop for Ludwig Coffee at lifcmarketplace.com. And we're back with David Waters. Through all of this, David, you've started to emerge as somebody who essentially not only affects food issues, but also social justice issues. You have this incredibly well-respected, robust program where you are training people who've come from uh, difficult circumstances in the food business and in the serving business. You're creating this second chances for nutrition and for medicine, but also for employment. So talk to me about that a little. I have this belief that if the amount of time we spend in our lives working, I'm just incredibly lucky if you think of a kid was passing hors d'oeuvres or washing dishes when I was 15, that I found a career in the food business kind of by accident that is so interesting and intellectually challenging, but, but also so fun and rewarding and joyful. I, I always say I'm neither a registered dietitian nor a public health expert, but I play one on TV. What I am really is a social entrepreneur, and I enjoy running food businesses. It just happens to be in the nonprofit world. But what that's evolved into is advocating in, at the state house or in Congress or uh, doing public speaking. Those aren't things that I expected to do, but 
it's really fun. And for the, the job training program, we've always had a lot of volunteers at community servings over the years. You know, we host, we now host in a non-COVID world, 75 people a day. Many of them in the early years were, were coming from a re-entry program. So they were just recently out of prison. They were uh, in a halfway house for addiction and they were good workers. So we would hire them. And then they became very loyal and dedicated to the mission. And it was their way of giving back for their own personal struggles in their past. And out of that, we said, well, I wonder if we could do more of that. And I went through a leadership program, Louisa, where you spend a day in prison um, in the cell block. And in this case, it was the women's cell block. And all the women would say, you know, we learned our lesson. We're, We're not coming back. And then you step outside and you talk to the guards and they say that statistically 50% will be back within two weeks. And you think, what the heck is that? And and again, you know, I'm a white middle-aged gay man. I, I didn't have training in social justice before this, but you just look at that and say, that's not right. And why is that not happening to the people with criminal records or in recovery that work for me? So out of that, we built this job training program where we said, we're going to recruit people with barriers to employment. We're going to give them 12 weeks of training in food service, get them their serve safe license, food safety license, give them life skills, interview skills, how to show up for work, how to manage your temper. And then we'll work with them for a year to get a job. But the secret sauce, the cool part of it is that while they're learning, they're helping us make meals for sick people. So they're helping us as much as we're helping them. Uh, and it, it it changes the dynamic because we say to them, you have as much to give us. We need you to show up every day because you're going to help us feed people. And what that does for their self-esteem and their self-confidence is to say they still have something to give. We know you can't go out and get a job or be successful in an interview if you can't advocate for yourself. So having that belief in the impact that you could have by helping other people is is so powerful. And out of that training program, we're we're the largest employer. So many of my employees who are, you know, beloved and very successful here have come from those kind of uh, challenge backgrounds. And do you have any sense of how the people who come out of your program are doing in terms of staying on the right side of the community? We don't track it exactly, but I can tell you it's very rare that you hear a story of somebody going back into prison, back into the system. What we hear tragically is that they overdosed. Most of them are struggling with addiction related to Oxycontin and that kind of thing. It's a tremendous loss when somebody has um, overdosed and someone wasn't able to catch them in time. I bet you know exactly how many meals you've been able to affect over these last 25 years of community. Well, I can tell you we're we're in the next, by the end of the summer, we'll be reaching the 10 million mark for meals, which is pretty cool because I can remember when we were blown away to get to that first million since the beginning of the pandemic. We, we were feeding a thousand people a day last March when we think of the beginning of the COVID pandemic, and we're now feeding 1,700 people a day, so 70% increase in one year. And we've been able to operate our kitchens without a single infection and stayed open throughout delivering to people. So people here take the responsibility very seriously, even when there was the fear, what were we risking for our families by coming to work? We've developed the protocols to keep everybody safe, 
and we've continued to feed people. But 70% growth in one year is kind of crazy. We had expanded statewide just prior to the beginning of the pandemic. So we're feeding people in the Berkshires and Pioneer Valley and the tip of the Cape all across. We're about to start delivering in Rhode Island. It's really exciting to be able to do it. I always thought what we were doing was healthcare, but nobody in healthcare wanted to acknowledge that that's what we were doing. They would say to me, you're anti-hunger and we're healthcare and you have to stay in your own lane because we don't have the money to feed poor people. We're focused on healthcare. But with the dawn of the ACA, it was a whole change in payment mechanisms such that there was the opportunity to go to healthcare and say, you ought to pay us to feed people. And they said, proven ROI, uh, a return on investment, and we'll consider it. And so we went out and did that, which is a fair amount of chutzpah to be able to pull that off. But we were published in the Journal of the American Medical Association showing a 16% cost savings, you know, a 50% drop in ho hospitalization, 72% drop in referrals to skilled nursing, less ambulance usage, less ER visits, just all really expensive things for very sick patients that are tied to food. And with that, I always say, if we can prevent one night in the hospital for a sick patient, we save enough money to feed them for six months. So we have opened up a whole national, a new field really, of using food in the context of treatment in healthcare. We now have 15 health insurance contracts here in community servings, feeding people across the state and we're teaching what we do around the country because you could do this now in rural community and urban community, the deep south, places that don't have philanthropic support, but they have a health insurer who wants to save money. And I always say, when we look at hunger in America, we've tried entitlement programs, government entitlement programs. We've tried charity, but we've never tried capitalism. Really the argument is if we can prove a profit motive for someone, to feed low-income sick people, we can really bend the curve on both hunger and healthcare, and in our case, also feed their whole family. Because we know that if we bring one meal to a household, the sick parent is gonna give it to their child first, the elderly, frail couple are gonna share that meal, and so you have to take a holistic viewpoint and feed the whole household. But the impact on that person who's sick is so profound, I just think of how lucky am I that this field has evolved in such an interesting and challenging way that we get to have such an impact on so many parts of society through food. It is pretty amazing, David. <laughs> it really is to think where it began, where you are now. How do you think about yourself now? You've really pulled off this incredible miracle, kind of growing your concept Every year, moving from feeding people with AIDS, understanding food is medicine, understanding that capitalism is going to work. I always say I run three businesses. I run a human service agency. I run a food manufacturing business. And I run a small marketing firm. Back to my time trying to be a writer, the storytelling skills that I learned as a writer, I think, are so valuable to me as the CEO, because I'm not doing the important work. It's my staff that's doing the important work and the volunteers and the donors and the community are doing it. And I'm just here to sort of trumpet their great work. So it's, it's really fun and it has now evolved, but it opens us up to be able to cover a much larger geographic area. But it's so much 
careful human attention to the right meals and then the right databases that are telling the cooks what to cook, the dietitians are prescribing diets, the drivers are tracking who they're going to deliver to today. And when they're out there, they're also talking to the client to say, how are you feeling today? Have you had bad news? Have you recently fallen? Is dementia setting in? They're on the front lines of healthcare. So all the way from diagnosing a diet to preparing it, to delivering it, it all comes back to that idea I said before of it's a gift from the community. And what a great way to use food to say to somebody, you're not forgotten. We see you. We see your struggles. We see how scared you are. And here's a beautiful meal to support you. You're reminding people who feel themselves marginalized by their illness and by society that they have value to the community. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, but it goes back to, I'm sure that all of your listeners feel this way when they cook food for their family or to entertain or when they go to the farmer's market. That's the food they want to eat. And so why isn't it the food that everyone would want to eat and particularly people who can't do it for themselves? Well, thank you, David Waters. That was just great. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our team, producer Rachel Gottbaum and sound engineer and composer Michael Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at heritageradionetwork.org or by visiting our website, letstalkaboutfood.com or find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. This podcast is supported by the Hunger to Health Collaboratory, a cross-sector leadership initiative dedicated to reducing the health consequences of hunger. With generous support from Stop and Shop, Hunger to Health Collaboratory convenes partners across sectors to advocate for health equity and food security. For more information, visit hungertohealthcollaboratory.org. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 